0: The Lord be with you, and I want to finally this week finish up with these 12 guys that went into the land of Canaan and came out with a vote of 10 to 2. We have given a lot of airtime to the 10, and I want to finish tonight by looking at the two, Caleb and Joshua. Joshua. We, we have been looking at how the way the Ten Scouts perceived themselves and how that perception of themselves changed their lives, but also changed the destiny of a nation. And I can't get away from that. How we see ourselves, how we know ourselves to be, It could be said is the most important thing. It's at the very heart of the gospel. That is the good news, that we see ourselves as God sees us, and we become incredibly out of step with the world, which sees itself as Satan's lies have molded our perceptions. And um, so there it is. That's what we're going to do. And it's in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. If you haven't been with us in these last weeks, and we'll be emphasizing the words of Caleb and Joshua. So let me ask every one of us, because I'm certainly asking it myself with great intensity these days, how do we see ourselves? That's a serious question. How do you see yourself? Who are you? I think I I told you when I asked that question of a group some many years ago. um, The group fell apart, and I mean it. To be faced with the question of who are you? That is, who is the I? Where I look at me, and I, i who am me? Who is this I that is in the very center of my very self? And to to the last person in that group, none had dared to look and answer that question. And so they hid behind the mask, not of who are you, but what do you do? And that was the, the, they made this gigantic leap away from their identity to what they did and made that their identity. No, we've got to come to our core person and we've got to see the answer to that question. Who are you? Who am I? And either we see ourselves through the lens of, what shall I say, um a make believe it's it's made up identity uh we 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 make it up out of our own flesh imagination trying to make sense of who we are uh it's a do it yourself identity uh, a kit that you put together and try to make sense of your life that is who i am there are many um over the last uh, number of years, especially, uh, and the phrase is, I- I'm I'm trying to find myself, uh, and they're coming close to that more than they know, you know. And we've had uh, teenagers. Maybe you're one who now is in your 20s or 30s and off around the world, go to the East and see, try to find who I am. It's a question, you see. And, and you go to these people and places and everybody has their opinion and throws it at you. That They think of this, they think of that. And, and, and we put on a mask to fade into the general identity of the crowd we're with. No. You see the only person who knows who you really are is your creator god he made you and he made you with a very specific identity and we discover that identity in the face of jesus by a revelation of the holy spirit it is called in plain english the gospel that is the gospel this because the word itself means this good news this fantastic news this news so good that it makes a man leap for joy the discovery of who i am in the eyes of god how god sees me how oh god he knows me by my identity because he sees me and knows me with the identity he created me to have. That, that's our identity, that's the gospel. And it, it's, I say, yet again, amazing how we avoid that or maybe don't even know it exists. That those ten scouts that came up with the identity, remember we've been camping out there for a while. When they looked at themselves in comparison to those that they perceived as enemies, they said, we are grasshoppers. Now, see, that is not a general unbelief. You you can't altogether say they were unbelievers, because they lived in the middle of miracles, It doesn't take very much to think back over the last year of their lives. And in the last year of the lives of these 10 fellows, they had lived, I say, in the middle of miracles. It was the miracle of deliverance out of Egypt with its plagues which brought down every god, demon god of Egypt. They were met at the borders of Egypt by the cloud of the shimmering glory, the, call the Shekinah glory, which, which was like a cloud on a hot summer's day. And there was, it guided them. There was a, there was a personal presence of God to be their guide. And at night it turned into flaming fire that saved them from the freezing temperatures of desert night time oh yes they they'd been in the middle of miracles day after day after day and of course then the manor they went out these chaps went out every morning in faith that god said there would be their food hidden there on the desert floor every morning and it was when it was water it came out of a rock and flowed like a river Oh yes, they lived in the middle of miracles, yet they come to this point having heard the voice of God himself at Mount Sinai define them as his covenant beloved people, heard the voice of God tell them that they were of such a kind, you could almost say a a, a new kind of human. They, they lived bigger than life because God himself was with them. And all their enemies or would-be enemies saw them through that, shall I say, lens of God with them. And they heard that. I mean, it wasn't hearsay. It wasn't gossip. It wasn't even a sermon preached. They heard it from the voice of God. And yet they had this specific unbelief which was, well, I've said it before, the core of their being. Who are you? And that's where they had a contradiction with God. God said, you are mine. God said, I love you. You are my special. God said, I am with you. I am around you like a a great shield. And I will be ahead of you and with you and behind you. And that's what they did not believe. That was a specific unbelief. Unbelief. Not believing what God their lover said to them and about them refusing to acknowledge the identity that God had given. And of course, this wasn't new in what God was doing. It's been there since the beginning. Would you understand me if I said, this is what it means to be human. It wasn't something unique to these people. What was unique to these, God had opened their eyes and opened their ears to discover who they were. God knew who they were. He made them. Now he had shared with them who they were. And they had this identity of being with God in a covenant sense. God had given himself to them. But they contradicted him. I mean, can can I get my brain around it? Why, Why on earth would you contradict that? No, they... Their idea of their identity was, I can do this, I've got to do this. When they saw the words of God, they interpreted them as commands to try and be that. You know, how is it possible that persons can read through the pages of the New Testament, look at the fullness of the gospel, and come away from it thinking that is God telling them they've got to try to be like it? that's incredible when the plain gospel this is a good news that it's not that you have to try and be like Jesus it is that Jesus through the spirit is living in you There's only one person who can live the life of Jesus and that's Jesus and you say no we don't want that no we don't there are some churches that forbid me to come and talk about it they they're afraid of the message that fills the New Testament. They believe, we, we've got to try, we've got to try. That's, that's the key word of religion. You've got to try and get there. And one of these days, you just might, you say. That, that was these people. That's blindness staring you in the face. They contradicted him, placed their faith in themselves to try and fulfill themselves the promise of God so they put up this imagined barrier of their own making between them and the God who loved them. They refused to move from their imagined identity as grasshoppers. And now, there were two, only two, If you believe the promises of God, often you'll find yourself in the minority. It's not a majority vote. Truth does not go by the vote. It isn't that, well, Caleb and Joshua were in a majority. They were in the minority. What's special about these two? They had the same background. I mean... They were neither older nor younger. They were all about the same age. And they had all been there together in Egypt. So you could say, well, it was a slave mentality. You bet it was a slave mentality. But Caleb and Joshua had had the same upbringing. And therefore, any identity that came into their mind and imagination as slaves... Uh, well, yeah, they all shared that together. They'd all seen the same miracles. They'd all been there through the plagues. They All 12 of them had followed the cloud and gone to get the manor and so on. They'd all heard that voice of truth that spoke at Mount Sinai. They listened to the revelation, the same as the 10. But, and here's where the great difference comes... Because you see, all all believers have the same Bible and, and can read the same verses, but it, it, if I'm listening just with my intellect, I, I tell you what, do you remember Jesus confronted the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the most religious of the religious. And actually, if you comb through what they believed, they would be very close to many persons I know today. Certainly, their emphasis upon reading the Scripture and memorizing the Scripture. By the age of 12, they had memorized um, masses of Scripture, and and not just by rote, but memorizing it and therefore could relate to other parts of Scripture from it. And, And Jesus said to them, that you search the scriptures that that was that would be really quite an honor if someone came to us today as you search the scriptures but he says you search the scriptures because you think that in them you you have eternal life that is if i read the scripture enough if i if i memorize it enough then surely i'm going to No. Jesus said, But you will not come to me. And I am the subject as well as the author of the scripture. Do you see what I mean? You can hear the word of God and hear it at an intellectual level. And you can even memorize it and then debate it with other religious people. But it has done nothing to your deepest heart. And you memorize it and debate it as words uh, words of philosophy and, and 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 no you've missed the point those words are in fact coming to you from the very heart being of god himself he's not they're not talking about god they are god himself revealing himself and out of the 12, these two listened to what was said at Mount Sinai. They also had listened to what had been said over the past uh, hundreds of years to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And there, these promises of God and this revelation of who God was resonated. You know that? it. it It comes as a living personal energy of love and gets a hold of your deepest spirit. And and God himself speaks into your heart that this is the truth. Very different from hearing it up here in order to debate it and wonder and question and then go away and say, I know about God. When we drive into San Antonio, you've heard me talk about this, I'm sure. Um, as you come into the general outskirts of San Antonio, there's a great big sign. I mean, you can't miss it. And it says, Think God. That's it. And they're scattered around the city of like kind. And, yes, I'm sorry if you, if you put up the money to put it there, but, it 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 offends me. In my deepest spirit, it offends me. We are not people who think God. We are persons who in our deepest being know God. We are called not to a classroom of philosophers, but we're called into a love relationship, and we hear him in our deepest self and the Spirit unites them as uniting us too. And we call that revelation. Don't be put off by that word revelation. Everything you know of God was a revelation, and sometimes a revelation sneaks up on you, and sometimes it leaps up inside of you. Sometimes you sit back and say, wow. Other times you're laughing for joy. But I tell you what it's like. You you can have in your pantry, you, you know, would you call it that over here? It's it's where the place, uh, the cupboard, the closet where you put the food. Uh, and you go in there and line upon line on the shelf there are cans of soups and vegetables. You're starving. You want food, and you look in there, and everything's there. Everything for a meal is staring you in the face, but it's inside a can. And therefore, all you can do is write a list of everything that you possess in terms of food. You're still starving hungry. The word revelation would be equivalent to taking the can off the shelf and actually removing the top of the can and preparing the food and then eating it. That's the, See, you can have all this knowledge about God, but only when you have brought nourishment to your inmost being that's revelation now you see what's in the can now it's no longer a picture outside it's you're actually chewing on what's inside it's a revelation and that's the difference Caleb and Joshua had a revelation that all that God said was not up for debate all that God said was not a jolly good idea isn't that amazing uh, we'll have to think about that. No, what God said, I say again, resonated. Grabbed or hold of them and hugged them. Arrested them. Transformed their mind and the way they thought about themselves and about their futures. Everything changes with Revelation because it's not just another idea It is the opening of the curtains. It's letting the sun shine in. And you know that you know that you know. When I was 17 years old, the Holy Spirit led me to the prayers of the New Testament, which all have one thing in common, and that is that you will now begin to see what you'd never seen before, that you might know in your heart the very knowing of God you don't know god but you know what god knows and i took those prayers 17 i'm 81 now and i have prayed those prayers every day of my life sometimes two three times a day open my eyes let me see let there be nothing "...that I merely know about, but give me eyes to see into what you're saying. Let me hear with eyes of my heart what you're saying. Come and grab hold of me with truth." And i, I that, that's the difference with these two fellows. They allowed the revelation, the revelation of the Holy Spirit to change their identity... For what they'd had before was indeed forged in Egypt. They were slaves, and that's how they thought. They were victims of their cruel masters. That's how they believed themselves to be. They walked with head down. They walked with shoulders hunched over. They were victims. But now, into that came the light of God and showed them who they truly are, their original their true identity. And so, what does it say? Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You see, did did you hear? No. And that word "no," it's that word we've talked about before. It means the knowing of personal seeing. It's the knowing of observation of your own. It's not overhearing. It's not secondhand. It's not gossip. You've, you were there. You, you could witness to this in court. You know because of what we've just been saying. The Holy Spirit has opened your inside eyes to see it. You know. You know the truth, the reality. You know truth as God knows truth. Truth that cannot change whether you believe it or not. Now you know the truth. You've experienced the truth. You've laid hold upon it. It's laid hold upon you. Sets you free. In fact, in one of the Psalms, there's a fascinating um, phrase. I I often return to it. At this point, even now, I still say there's something I haven't quite seen there yet. Where David comments, he makes a commentary Really, on this period of time that we're in now, it says, let me quote, Psalm 103, verse 7, He made known, God made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the sons of Israel. That's interesting. He said that He made known His ways, and that word would mean pathways. It would mean the ways uh, that God always walks it's it's his MO you know and so so David knew sorry Moses knew um this, this is how God works this is his heart you see this is why God does these things that that was Moses and Caleb and Joshua are standing right there beside Moses in, in all that's happening at this time. Uh, they, they were with him. They too, you could include him in that. God made known his ways. He made known the pathways, the way he walked, why he did things, his heart, his insights, his knowings. But then it says his acts or his workings, his miracles to the sons of Israel. That is, Israel saw a miracle. To them, wow, that, that was their response. Their response was, wow, you know, a miracle. They, they, they saw the miracle and they were amazed. And they stood stunned looking at each other and says, wow, well, this is wonderful, God is good. Had no idea why God did it. Just excited. They're excited that he's done it, yeah. And, and I hope he'll do it again, you know. But it, we had no idea. It, they had no comprehension that behind that miracle was the way of God, which is, I love you, and I'm giving myself to you, and you can trust me because I'll always be there, and I'll always be ready to show my love power to you. My arms are around you. So that, that's the ways, that, that's who he is. It's his ways. But to the sons of Israel, it was a lot of disconnected wonders and, and with no guarantee in their minds that he would ever do it again. It's just a wonder. You know, I've got to tell my grandkids this one. And these, Moses, but we're talking about Caleb and Joshua. Um, one of the phrases that God used to describe Caleb and Joshua was they fully followed him, fully followed him. And there is one way of translating that as they put their feet in my footsteps. That is that they are treading the path with God. They, they, they're not, they, they don't think this is just an amazing wow. They realize this is the heart of God. We can trust him that wherever we are, God is unchangeably with us, and he will always be experiencing life with us. And so this opened them up to receive whatever the Holy Spirit was revealing into their spirit, into their attitude. Do you know the word spirit sometimes, if not always, could be translated as attitude? You know what attitude is? Um, At least if you've got teenagers, you do, and they they will sit there. They're not saying a word, but the the energy coming out of them is spiked. You know, and 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 you would maybe have said you've got an attitude. Attitude is um, a way of looking at life that gets into my speech. It gets into my tone of living. It even gets into the way my feet move, because you can have an attitude that cause your feet to slouch along and tell the world, I don't want to be doing this. Uh, attitude, it shows up in your shoulders. They're either erect, I've got an attitude of accepting life, or they're hunched over and I'm bored and I wish I wasn't here. You know attitude, what attitude? Well, that word attitude is... It's a possible translation to the word spirit. Um, Holy Spirit is indeed the attitude of God. That's a, that's we well, we'll talk about that for an hour one day. But my spirit, my spirit, uh, my attitude involves my expectancy of God, and therefore my expectancy of the next chapter in life. I'm walking in his footsteps. I'm anticipating his love. And I know he's for me. And that produces an attitude of joy and peace. Expectancy. And that expectancy involves, I expect him to be what he said he is. My strength. My wisdom. I can, I can handle this. That's attitude. I've got this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or, as the Amplified Bible puts it, I am self-sufficient in the sufficiency of Christ. That's an attitude. Do do you understand that? When they looked, okay, put it this way, when they looked into the mirror of truth, they saw not only themselves, but they saw the face of God if he's in me, if he's with me, then for me to live is Christ, you see. And so I look in the mirror. I'm very serious here. I know sometimes this sounds like poetry to some people, almost like a fairy tale to others, but this is the truth of the entire Bible, specifically the New Testament, that when we look in the mirror of truth— I don't only see Malcolm, I see Malcolm Jesus. I I see Malcolm in Christ. I see Malcolm Christ in me. And, And that is not an addition. It's not, what do they call it in some of these, deeper life. It's not deeper life, that's life. This is not some second experience of supreme holiness. This is being alive, as the Bible defines life. That was Caleb and Joshua. They 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 trusted, you see. They trusted God meant what he said. They trusted because they had heard inside them what God said about them. They trusted. And so truth shapes their thinking. I ever thought of it. what you believe, truth, it shapes the way you think, shapes your imagination. And, of course, shapes your expectancy. And you know what happens when we see who God is and his revelation of himself and what he knows about us and is now sharing with us what he knows about us? And that wonder, inside that wonder is faith. See, faith isn't an intellectual thing. Or oh, the number of people, you say, I'm trying to have faith, say, I'm trying to have faith. And, and and so we've got to read the Bible more to get faith, get faith. Um, in Ephesians 2, it says that faith is the gift of God. So I don't know what your struggle is. You're sweating too much. There's your sweat all over the pages of the Scripture. You're trying to get faith, trying to get faith. Um... Or always, I don't have enough faith. Well, faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God, but please, that's a lot more than your Bible. Jesus is the Word. That's one of His, in fact, His foremost name in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. He was with God, He was God. Uh, faith comes by hearing God. The Word, that is the revelation to me of who Jesus is, the revelation of all he's done, the revelation of who he now is in me. And my response to that is faith. With that revelation, with God showing himself to us, with it comes faith. And and with the faith we trust him. And know these two fellows... To them, it's normal. We're going to read what they said in a moment, and it's very obvious they weren't. There's no trying there. They're not trying to have faith. They're not trying for anything. To them, this is the way it is, and and they they talk with a shall I say a holy, a divine casualness. When the the, when the ten spoke, it was in the grip of fear. And there was an edge to their words. And they're, they're, when it comes to Caleb and Joshua, that's not there. They're just saying, what, what's the matter with you people? You see, because they've heard it in their spirit and their spirit has responded with an attitude and in the middle of the attitude is a God-given faith. And I might say that is for all of us. There's no special pets with God. He doesn't have special people, that he gives things to, but he won't give it to you. That was a damnable doctrine invented some few years, hundreds of years ago. No, he gives all of himself to all of us. And as we simply say, give me revelation, that revelation steals upon us. And with the coming of the revelation comes faith and trust. Okay, look, look at what he said. Honestly, I'm fascinated with this just to read it. Um, Because hidden in these words is what we're talking about, identity. This is how he sees himself. This is how he knows God sees him. And so it comes out in his words. In Numbers 13.30, that's a good one to begin with. Then Caleb quieted the people. You see, already they're in a state of, chaos through what the ten have said, Caleb quieted the people. When you know your identity as God has revealed you in Christ, you bring peace wherever you go. He quieted the people and said, listen, we should by all means go up and possess the land, for we shall surely overcome it. Now, do do you hear what I mean when I say there's a certain casualness? He said, "What are these guys saying?" He said, "Well, I I don't get it. We should surely, absolutely, right now." He said, "We should go and take the land. We'll surely overcome everything they're talking about." I, I don't know. Now, just a minute, Caleb. You were in the land. You were with these ten. You saw what they saw. You saw these gigantic, monstrous creatures that um, worship demons and are demon empowered. And he said, "I saw. Yeah, I saw that." But <laughs> God saw it before I did, and He said He would be with us to go. So, well, what's the problem? And He wasn't being snarky not sarcastic. The man is honestly wondering, why aren't we going in? Because what I know is the final truth, and I didn't make it up. God said it to all of us. Numbers 14, verse 7. This is when he expands and He says, the land, that's the land of Canaan, which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. Oh, brother, if you could see that land. Now, listen. He says, if the Lord is pleased with us. Uh, Incidentally, the word if there, if is not to be looked upon as um, a question mark. I mean, in plain English, we we many times use the word if um, as seeing that is the case. Have you ever been to, say, a board meeting and they've they've re- read out all the we, we, the company possesses, and now here's what we need to do, and and someone says, well, if that's the case, if that's the case, then let's go ahead and do it. They're, they're not bringing up a question when they say if that's the case. They're really saying, seeing it is the case. And that's how the word if is used here. It's not, well, maybe, perhaps the Lord is pleased with us, or perhaps he's not. But if he is, no, 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 no. He's saying, if the Lord is pleased with us. He's saying, look, guys, let's lay out everything we know, starting in Egypt and all that he's done, all that he's done and all that He said. We're, We're standing at the end of this revelation of God. Well, look, if the Lord is pleased with us, got eyes in your head? Of course he's pleased with us. Look at it. I'll come back to that in a minute. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. That is a good enough translation, but it's... It's almost uh, now. Now I think he is being a bit sarcastic. Um, you could translate that where it says "they shall be our prey." You could translate it as "we'll have them for lunch." It it, it means uh, they're, they're nothings. They they might look big, but they're empty. They're bloated. They they're just it, it's it's we'll have them for lunch. It, it's it's nothing. Then he says, their protection has been removed from them. That is, the demons that they worship and have empowered them have already left, because the demons know who we are. And then he finishes by saying, the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Okay. And, and the, the Lord um, spoke very specifically and said, my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, that is, he's got a different heart attitude to these others. He has followed me fully, right? That's what I said before. And God says, I will bring into the land which he entered. Now, these bold words were backed up by Moses himself. In Deuteronomy one twenty nine. Moses is telling what he how he went through this period he says then i said to you moses said he's talking to the children of these people and and moses moses said i i said to you do not be shocked do not fear them that is i i i know this situation looks enormously threatening but um don't act as if you never heard what God said. That would be a good way of putting it. Don't be shocked. I know what I know what you see, but don't you know what you've heard? Don't you know the commitment, covenant commitment of God to you? Well, what are you shocked about? And don't fear them. That's what Caleb has just said. The Lord your God, I am your God, the Lord being the I am, your God, listen, who goes before you, so he's ahead of you handling the situation before you get there. He goes before you, will himself fight on your behalf. And so he says, you will be there, and you will confront the, this this situation, but you'll be super aware that God himself is fighting for you. This is true of every situation in life. Then he puts in just as he did for you in Egypt, before your eyes, that is, you were witnesses of it. And in the wilderness where you saw how I am your God carried you just as a man carries his son. He says, get get with it, get with it. Don't you realize the love that God has for you? Don't you realize the way that he's brought you to this moment? And he goes on, in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place, But for all this, all that has gone before, all that he's ever said to you, all that he's ever done, you did not trust, I am your God. You didn't trust God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp Oh, the humility of God. He goes ahead of you to find a place for you to camp. And there he's your fire by night, he's your cloud by day, and he's your guide to show you the way which you should go. Do you think he's going to walk out on you now? Here you are, shocked by how big the people are, and afraid of them. And you know the meaning of fear. Fear um, is, is a word which means actually um, to stand in awe of. Actually, it means to worship. Did you know that? It's in Webster's Dictionary, so don't look at me like that as if I had a new revelation. It's in Webster's Dictionary. That's the meaning of fear. It means to worship. That that is that you fear these people. That is you are believing in, you are trusting in their ability to destroy you. You're trusting in their might to bring about their malignant agenda against you. You believe it, and you stand in such a posture that you're worshipping them. But to worship them means you're dead. And so, therefore, fear has the terror and the panic attached to it. But the word is used, obviously, concerning God. It says, fear the Lord. Yes, worship him. Stand in awe and wonder of his love. It's the same word. Depends who you fear, what you expect of it. And so they feared the people and distrusted God. And that's why Caleb had said, don't fear the people, because that's rebellion against God. Hmm. All this results in, in this, uh, the way he put it, he says, we, and notice this, we, that's us humans, we can surely do this. Do you remember? We just read that. But then he goes on to say, and he, this glorious God, is able and will do it. Uh, Just a minute, you said we would do it. And then in the next breath, you said he would do it. Yes, you see, because don't you remember the last thing he said? Lord is with us. So, he is with us, and that doesn't mean, um, well, let me put it this way. When he says the I am is with us, that word with is a very rich word. Um, it means a close relationship to us, even face to face. It means companionship to the max, it's a word used in covenant that to say two persons or two parties have bonded together. Your, your withness has a bond to it, a glue, the glue of covenant, so that we are sharing life in common. We're sharing experiences together. <clears throat> we are participating in them together. <laughs> so the Lord is with us. That means he is so closely associated with us, binding himself to us in covenant so that he is experiencing what we're now facing so that we might experience his ability and strength and power and wisdom to do it. See, when we say he's with us, many people think he's sort of, what can I, like a chaplain. You know, the the chaplain in the armed forces, and he's there with the troops on the battlefield. But, um, well, you know, just there. Uh, as the enemy advances, you're not going to go to the chaplain. He comes in afterward when you're in need of him. Um no, so when God says He's with us, He's not the chaplain that will comfort us when we've been beaten up. Um, He, I tell you, what, He's not like a journalist. You know, NBC, ABC, they have their journalists with the troops on the battlefield, but they're only there to photograph you as you get shot. <laughs> um, the journalist, uh, He only observes and then reports on the battle. I'd, lo- I'd love to find how many believe that God is with us, but he's only there as an observer. He's sort of like your grandfather in his rocking chair and he's watching the kids play. And um, all he does is smile benignly, but he's not involved at all. Is that how you think God is with you? no, no he is with us in us around us he's our strength he's our strategy he's our peace he's our joy he is with us at our deepest core level to the point as we've already observed the demons knew that God was with them and and had left already <laughs> um you know de- demon the bible says demons believe and tremble at the presence of God incidentally demons also know who you are you, know, you should hold that in mind demons know who you are if, if i i would say and this is uh i'm going to say it badly but if if I knew myself as demons know me, that would be incredible because they do know who you are. And I'm talking to that little lady, at least in your mind, you're a little lady sitting there watching this on YouTube and you feel that you're the most insignificant, the most unworthy. You, you could die tonight and no one would ever know you've been here. That's how you see yourself. But I'm telling you right now, if you knew yourself as demons know you, you would sit up in your chair and realize that you are one with Christ and Christ is one with you and for you to be alive is him to be alive in that situation. But that's only how demons see you. If you knew how God your Father sees you and knows you and loves you, huh, You would never again, ever again, ever again think of yourself as insignificant. You would never let the blasphemy of saying I'm unworthy drip over your mouth. You would realize that you are in Him and He's in you and you participate in His action in life. You see, He made known His ways, but in knowing His ways and I'm bound to Him and I'm becoming part of i'm one with his acts i never think of myself acting speaking as an isolated independent person because i'm not when i speak to you i'm very aware that the thoughts and the imaginations and many times the illustrations it's i speak yet not i it's christ who speaks in me to the point where as he is so am i which means that seamlessly Christ is my life. Dare I say, simultaneously, as he is, so am I. And that's you too, because there's no division in God. No division. But no, we see that we. so many are on, on the side of the ten. We. It, I, I don't know, we, religion goes out of its way to avoid just simply saying Who we are in Christ, what terrifies it so much? I suppose they'd be out of business if the whole congregation knew that they didn't have to dedicate themselves every day and every week and but they they just is they are where God has placed them inside of Christ, no. If, if we say, I've got to do this by myself, I'm trying to be like Jesus, that's one end of it. But the other end is the person who just, I don't know, you loathe yourself, demean yourself. You know, it's not me, it's the Lord. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. That is not humility. That is contradicting God. He said, I live, yet not I, it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Try and untangle that. that, that that's, I say again, seamless. I am alive. But my life is because Christ is my life. And yet I'm living. I'm living with a peace and a joy that I've never had in my life until I realized this. There was a song we used to sing when I was a lot younger, and it was, uh, All of Him and None of Me. Where'd you get that from? Don't you realize God is nuts about you? He loves you. He created you specifically to a design that He would be God inside of you. He's not saying none of you. It's beyond my explanation that the desire of God is to have you as his residence. I don't think it fits to say none of me because he wants to live inside of me and be seen uniquely, God, in me, in you. Huh. Well, I think we've covered it. You are the people. Why don't you say, if the Lord takes pleasure in us, yes, we know he does. Seeing that he takes pleasure. But you know, that word pleasure, that word pleasure is... It means to bend toward. That is the same way as you would bend toward your little child. Why would you bend over like that? Because you love the child, and you want to come to the level of the child. You want to hold the child. So you bend. That's a big thing with parents. Every parent learns to bend bend because of love. And that's the meaning of that word in the Hebrew language. And really it is in English. You take pleasure in the child, and therefore you bend toward. Can you take this in, that he takes pleasure in you? As we are sitting here talking to each other, he takes pleasure. He is the third person in this conversation he he bends bends can you imagine what I'm saying the stoop of God that he stoops down and actually lives inside one of his creatures but he lives inside one because he lives inside all can you imagine this is why Jesus died and this probably is the heart of all the questions I've been asking, because wherever I talk to people and I say, why did Jesus come? And they all say, almost, almost all, he came to die. And I say, why did he come to die? And they say, he came to die to take away our sins so that I could go to heaven when I die. Hmm. Well, there's an element of truth there. For indeed he died and in dying took to himself our sins and becomes indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. The blood of Jesus Christ, the pouring out of his life at the cross, cleanses us from all sin. I say amen, yes, to that. It's the foundation of everything. I agree with that. But I was asking the why that what's the conclusion? Because the conclusion wasn't that. When Jesus cried with that loud voice, it is finished, what was finished? He tells us in a conversation he had about two hours before he was arrested that night. It's recorded in John 13, 14 through to 17. Four chapters. Now remember, he is about to go and suffer. He's about to die. And so in those four chapters, he is quite urgently telling the disciples of what's about to happen. And and he's saying, you know, you're going to be plunged into sorrow and so on. But he continually returns to the subject of, this is why. This is what's going to happen. This is what it's going to be like whenever it's all over. And I search those four chapters. Not once, not once does he say, then you will know your sins are forgiven, and then you will go to heaven when you die. It's not there. And you would think, two hours before it all begins, he would have given them if that is indeed why he was dying. But it isn't. All through those chapters he has one subject, and that is in that day, when it's finished, in that day you will know that I am in the Father. That is, I am truly one with God the Father. He's saying, you'll know I'm God the Son. In that day you will know I'm in the Holy Trinity. But he is then saying but you'll also know that I'm in you. That is the same way that God the Son is in the Holy Trinity now as he is inside our humanity, one of us. He says, I'm in you and you are in me. You'll be one with Father and Son and Holy Spirit. He said, in that day, in that day, it will be like, uh you'll be like a branch that's in the vine. Now try and tell me where the vine ends and the branch begins. They are unity. And the life of the vine is the life of the branch, and the fruit of the vine is because of the life. It is so. And he said, that's where we're headed. And then he said, in that day, the Father will come and dwell in you, and I will be in you, and the Holy Spirit in you. We will come and make our dwelling with you. Huh. So the whole point of getting rid of our sin and doing it finally and absolutely by the power, authority of the blood of Christ the that the reason for that was, in order that we might now, in our union with Jesus, be carried into union with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and be what we've been talking about for the last hour. Do you understand this is not deeper life, this is not just some second, third, fourth experience. This is not camp meeting time. This this is not... This is Christianity. This is Gospel 101. This is why Jesus came. That we might live and in living be Christ in us and us in Christ. You say, how can I ever get there? Well, you're too late. You're there. It tells us that God the Father put you in Christ and as I'm speaking the Holy Spirit is awakening you to know that And for some of you what I've been saying many times these days you don't you don't know you're asleep until you wake up and then realize you've been asleep and some of you listening to me now are beginning to realize you have been asleep. It means you're waking up to realize what this is really all about really all about and and so i it says in 1 Corinthians 130 but by his doing the father's doing you are in Christ Jesus now that's you are that's the way it is and um that means I, I begin to live life from this reality. I'm not struggling to get into Christ, I'm there. I'm not struggling to become, I, I'm there. So now we live from being there, not toward trying to get there. And I would urge every one of you to look, Ephesians 1.17... That's the prayer I referred to earlier that I prayed every day of my life. Find it in a modern translation, maybe the message, the passion, the mirror, um, and, and pray it. And just simply, that's the rest of your life. Open my eyes that I might see. I see myself as you see me, but I might be filled with your knowledge of me. And then see what happens. I do say that with my tongue in cheek because the Holy Spirit is straining at the leash to start making it happen. And so give yourself over to Him. Don't expect lightning. Don't put a time. Just pray the prayer and let the Holy Spirit who's madly in love with you do His thing. And He will sneak up on you and there will be a sudden realization. You'll put your foot out of bed and... You suddenly realize the newness of this day, and let me read to you that verse that I closed with last week, but it's maybe even more appropriate this week. It's a verse that Pastor Rick in Myrtle Beach shared with me after a couple of weeks ago, and um, I'm going to be with him in the springtime more of that later, but in, in this verse, it's 2 Corinthians 6, verse 11, and, and Paul is, uh, what, it's, it's this yearning in the message, paraphrases, it says, dear, you dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this that we've been talking about, this wide open, this spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness, grasshopper thing, the grasshopper smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a very small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. And the blessing of God who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may He bless you with eyes wide open to His plan and purpose, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that out of you there shall flow rivers of life, to the world around you. So I this night bless you and send you into this week in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit because that is the way it is.